Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm joined by Sarah Jo Royalty. Sarah Jo was recently featured in the summer issue of Fly Tire Magazine. Please join us as Sarah Jo shares her journey from commercial fisherman and musician to professional caddy and fly tire. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. But before we get to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a review on the podcatcher of your choice. It really helps us out. And now a shout out to this episode's sponsor. This episode's brought to you by our friends at Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. Using a science-based approach, BTT and its partners work tirelessly to conserve and restore the flat species so many of us love to chase on the fly. On September 17th at 7 p.m. Eastern, BTT will virtually host its ninth annual NYC auction and award ceremony. You can attend this great event from the comfort of your home. Please visit btt.org to learn more, register, and support this great organization. Now, on to our interview. Well, Sarah Joe, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Thank you for having me. I'm pretty excited to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation too. And we have a tradition on the Articulate Fly. We always ask all of our guests to share their earliest fishing memory. You know, my earliest fishing memory um, was I was about four years old and I had a Snoopy rod. I like the Snoopy rod. The action's really good on that one, you know. Um, my grandpa would take me out. We had a couple hundred acres of tobacco and soybean farms in Ohio. And every Saturday morning and Sunday morning when we were on the farm, he would wake everybody up, you know, at the butt crack of dawn and take us all fishing on our private pond. Um, and it's funny cause my mom told stories growing up about how she just absolutely hated that. And I of course loved it, which kind of drove her crazy cause then as an adult, she was still <laughs> going out there. Um, but I remember I, you know, we put a worm on, threw it out, and I landed a pretty decent sized bass. I mean, especially for my size. I mean, the thing was probably four or five pounds. <laughs> and I was, that was it. I mean, I, I was out there as often as I could. As soon as I was old enough, I was there, you know, go down there on my own. And that's really what got me started. Yeah, very neat. And I know earlier in your life, you spent quite a few years as a commercial fisherman uh, off the North Carolina coast. How did you get from Ohio to Eastern North Carolina and get into the commercial fishing game? You know, it was pretty roundabout. Um, so yeah, grew up in the Midwest. When my mom uh, got her doctorate, we had to move to Illinois. And um, that was during my high school time. And it was just honestly just the midwest oh god it was so boring to me i've been to carolinas for vacation annually with my family and i graduated early actually when i was 17 so the pretty much the day i turned 18 i rode out there and um it wasn't right away it was a it was probably a good year or almost two years of living on that coast before i started probably a year um funny enough (laughs) I saw the perfect storm and I was like, aside from the bad storm in the movie, I'm really intrigued by this type of fishing. I think I might hate it, but I just, the challenge, I really want to try it. So I basically, uh, I got a job as an observer on a shark boat, which was, we're long line for shark. There's a limit. So we'd only be out uh, like three or four days at a time. And, after the first trip, I was just so bored, you know, quote unquote, observing that I started helping out. Um, 
And they really didn't need me as crew, so I wasn't making money, but I got a skill set to be able to work on other boats. And I basically just hung out on the dock until somebody got hard up for, you know, for a deckhand. And after that first trip, they kept me. So I did I did that for on and off for six years, um, long lining for tuna and swordfish offshore. I did a little of that, and then I would switch seasonally and do, um, I ran a shrimp boat for a while, um, did mullet netting a little, did uh, oystering and clamming and bottom fishing. So. Yeah, very neat. What's the, uh, speaking of the perfect storm, what's the craziest thing that happened to you uh, while you were out in the water as a commercial fisherman? You know, there was definitely a couple of uh, incidents. The one that I remember the most, there was, um, you know, it's this timing thing. The line is going out and there's two people. One person has one side of the hook and, well, they have the hook and they're baiting it. And then the other person is snapping it on the line. And, um, you know, it go, it doesn't stop if you're not ready. So like, if you're just off, you know, off your rhythm, that's when trouble can happen. And the guy who was baiting, I don't know what happened, but the hook went into his hand because he was off his rhythm. He wasn't done hooking. The line was going down. He went over. He was hooked and down underwater. We had to um, stop the line, reel him back in and bring him in. He was okay, but it was uh, it was pretty intense. You know, almost lost somebody, so it was pretty intense. Um, that's the one thing. The other couple little things is um, there was one storm that was, the waves are about 30 feet and we were pretty much, um, at that point, you're bracing yourself in your bunk, like with your arms and your legs against the trying to hold yourself in place. That was pretty crazy too. Yeah. I'm afraid I, I get a little too seasick for 30 foot seas. Yeah. It's a little intense. Yeah. So, um, so when did you find the dark side of fly fishing? You know, it's funny because I will never stop kicking myself for this um it actually wasn't too long ago but um when i was a commercial fisherman in the carolinas a a lot of times i would get hired uh, by sport fishing boats to go do fish finding for like the big rock tournament and other fishing tournaments in the area and i ended up meeting this guy through this network who was a saltwater fly fisherman for patagonia and he was like sarah you got to come with us i just think you would love this his name was Jacob. Jacob, if you're listening, I'm sorry. But he would be like, you got to come out with us. And I just, I would shut him down. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm 20. I don't really have a ton of money. Like I can't afford a several thousand dollar hobby. Like, no. And he's like, I have the stuff. And I'm, I was just like, I, I can't, I know me. I'll spend every la- I won't feed myself before I get a new rod and reel. Like I know me. And he would try to get me. And I know I came over to his shop one time because he was like, Sarah, you got to come out this uh, bench I have I just think you would love tying <laughs> I just I wouldn't do it because I didn't see myself being able to invest in doing it and I knew that I would like it too much so um, I didn't touch it and then when I moved out to the west coast I've been out here 12 years but when I moved out my kids were really young so I wasn't doing any fishing at the time so when they got a little older and I started to get back into it um I had a guy that I dated who was just oh, everything in his life was fly fishing this and that. And um, 
I wouldn't say that he taught me, he, um, but he introduced me to it, and I watched him a lot. And I actually used to, um, he was real potato, he just didn't really want me to touch any of his stuff. So um, he would leave to work, and I would get on his vice and mess around with stuff. And then I, w- I would take a picture of the vice in the table and put it back <laughs> exactly the way he had it. And one day when he came home, I had my own vice. He's like, what the heck's going on? I was like, so I might have borrowed yours a couple of times until I decided I wanted my own. And that was the start for me. Um, that's probably only been about five years ago. Maybe not even that much. Probably a little less. Um, but I would say after about nine months of um, doing that, uh, I went to my first fly fishing show and just as a visitor and somehow they asked me to, they asked me if I tied, I said I did. They asked me to email them some pictures of flies and I was in. Yeah. I started doing fly shows after that. Yeah. Very neat. And, um, so you've only, you haven't been fly fishing that long. Who are some of the folks that mentored you probably other than that boyfriend? You know, yeah, I don't like, it was such a weird experience because they, I wouldn't, you know, I didn't learn a lot from him, but he introduced me and then I kind of, you know, I did a lot on my own at first. I didn't understand the fly fishing world. I didn't understand the network, how it worked, you know, until I started going to the shows. Um, and then the, the people at the shows really took me in, like Dave McNeese, um, who does Blue Heron Hooks. He's been uh, definitely a big influence for me. And a good friend, Marty Howard, um, who is a, an author about steelhead uh, books. He's got a couple of them out. He, uh, he's another one that has mentored me. And honestly, they just really have encouraged me, a lot of these guys, because um, even, even my reps and stuff, I'm like, uh, you know, they're offering me sponsorship. And I'm like, you got this all wrong. Like, I'm new. I, I don't know what I'm doing. They're like, no, no you'll be fine. We'll help you along. Like you're great. We, we want you to do this. So, um, they definitely encouraged me a lot. And every time you go to a show, you learn a little trick from someone every time. Yeah, absolutely. And so what's your favorite species to chase on the fly? So far, I would say is steelhead. Um, they're definitely really tough to catch and they take a lot of time. Um, but it's, you know, it's worth that, all that casting time. I, I think that just coming from commercial fishing and catching such large fish, that that was one of the allures for fly fishing for me because, you know, after you're catching 100-pound fish, come back and catch a little trout, everybody's like, oh, that 18-inch trout, that's a great one. I'm like, that's ridiculous. You know, <laughs> I just had a hard time with the sizing issue, I think. So um, I like the tug on the steelhead. They're real playful, you know. Summer steelhead over here on the North Uncle will take a top water. So that's pretty exciting. Um, but I'm not, I'm not too biased to be honest. Yeah. Very neat. And, you know, in addition to being a commercial fly tire, you know, I also know you're an accomplished musician and you're a professional golf caddy. And I was really curious, uh, <laughs> oh, you're laughing. Uh, yeah. I'm like, how did you find out about that? <laughs> Oh, it's in your it, about the music. Oh, it's in your LinkedIn profile. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. I don't I never go on there. 
Yeah, yeah. So no, I was I always do research before I do interviews, and so um, and I really wanted to ask you about it too because it was something that wasn't covered in the piece that Dave Klausmeyer did on you in Fly Tire. Yeah, you know, we didn't talk about it. I didn't think about it. I, um, he really kind of, other than the fishing, was like, I really want to talk about the golf course and the caddying, which I just kind of loved. I was like, I love that he wanted to talk about that because that was one of my things. Um, like when I started doing Instagram, you know, it's like TFO's like, hey, you really, you got to get on social media. So, you know, I've been trying to work on that. And um, I just, uh, I wasn't even sure how to approach that. I'm like, should I have a golf account for caddying and then a fishing account or what should I do? And, and since I'm not, you know, too social media savvy, I mean, I'm just more of a doer than a, you know, let's get on and post and content. I mean, I do that stuff uh, and I do enjoy it now a little bit, but it's just not my natural go-to. So I decided, you know what, a lot of people that golf fish, and vice versa. I'm just going to combine the two and hope it works out. And it's worked out so far. Well, cool. So, you know, I, I found, I found about, about your music career on LinkedIn. So tell me a little about it, a little bit about it. Cause it sounds like, you know, from the time you were a relatively young girl, you've been performing. Yeah. I, I started playing classical piano when I was three. Um, and I took lessons till I was 15 and at that point, uh, I don't know that lessons were even pertinent anymore. Um, I honestly couldn't find a teacher after that. So practice on my own. Um, when I moved to the Carolinas, I started playing the guitar. Actually, I started singing with one of my best friends who lives in Maine. We've been best friends for over 20 years. And he was playing for me. And he was getting ready to go sailing to Norway. And he said, I said, well, who's going to play for me? He said, well, you're going to have to figure out and play it for yourself. So I went and bought a guitar just because the, so I guess I should mention that in the Carolinas, I lived on a sailboat. So the sailboat does uh, not accommodate a piano very well. I learned the guitar. I started performing there. Um, Since I kind of fish seasonally on and off, I would perform several times a week when I was not offshore. And, um, I, you know, I put out an album and, uh, that was kind of it. I moved out to the West coast thinking I would continue the music gig and the area that I live in has virtually no live music and they don't even want it. Um, it's a little different now. It's a little better now for that, but at the time it just kind of killed the music career a little, um, and then somehow a couple years ago, people just keep knocking on my door asking me to do more. So I'm trying to juggle it a little. I've been uh, doing a lot of studio stuff, writing and copywriting and recording new songs. So um, nothing I've released anytime recently. Plus this COVID deal, I don't feel like is a good time to be releasing a lot of music because I know there's no live concerts or anything going on. Um, so I've kind of, given that a little bit of a back burner, not to mention, it's just kind of hard to juggle all three, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you do have a lot on your plate. Do I remember uh, that you also know how to play the dulcimer? Yeah, I actually play like the drums, the ukulele, bass guitar, yeah, guitar, dulcimer. When I was younger, yeah, I did play the dulcimer for quite a while. Also played um, 
I played a lot of instruments, the flute, the clarinet, the oboe, the violin, the cello. Typically, if you can play the piano very proficiently, you can pick up any instrument and learn it within a few hours. You know, not obviously great, but you, you can be proficient and start playing songs within a few hours. Yeah, very neat. And you've had some really interesting music gigs. What's the one that stands out in your memory the most? You know, my favorite is this. Um, I was down at Daytona 500 for four or five years in a row um, as private entertainment for the drivers and owners, which was incredible because I get to watch all the races because I obviously am not playing for them while they're driving. They would get done off the racetrack and want to sit around a campfire and listen to live music, and that was me. Yeah, very cool. How did you get that gig? You know, I think it's just one of those things you end up knowing somebody and they're like, hey, we'd love some, we like your stuff. We'd love some, you know, it's just kind of fall into everything. I feel like that's how everything happens. I just happen to meet one guy and the next thing I know, you know, I'm off at Daytona. <laughs> Actually, I think that um, the commercial fishing was kind of how I got that job. I know that makes no sense, but <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's really neat. And I mean, you know, so, uh, you know, you are a commercial fisherman, you're an incredibly pro- proficient musician and you have this passion, uh, for caddying for golf. How did you get into the golf caddying gig? Um, the golf caddying gig, that was another knock on the door. Um, when I was out in Oregon, when I first moved out here, you know, our town's only 3000 people and we have this world-class golf resort. And the resort uh, is so big at this point, it is employing or independently contracting upwards of 900 people. So most of the people I knew in town worked at the resort in some fashion or another. And I had about 20 to 30 caddy friends um, that I would hang out with doing various things, you know, go to the beach, do whatever. But every, every single one of them at some point looked at me and said, why don't you caddy? And I just, I was like, why would I do that? Why would I do that? I didn't understand the question because I didn't play golf. I just, but what they were referring to is, you know, the nature of me liking to work outdoors, doing physical work. They just thought it would be a perfect fit for me. And I didn't really give it a whole lot of thought until my kids, you know, I was working in the evening so I could be at home with my young children during the day. But when they were ready to go into kindergarten and first grade, I realized that I, if I didn't change my job, I probably would never see them. Um, so I, because I have actually worked in food and beverage on and off for 15 years. So at the time I was working in food and beverage uh, at, at in the evening and um, I just decided, well, maybe I'll look into this caddying thing since. You know, it's a daytime only thing. I need a daytime only gig. And um, so I kind of, I read the PGA manual. I didn't even really start golfing then. I have, I have golfed a couple times before that, but uh, it was not a regular thing. I did not own clubs. Um, so I started looking into it, um, started training and ended up getting a, getting a job somehow. I kind of weaseled my way in. Um telling the caddy master that no one was going to outwork me 
and that, you know, I, this ground doesn't even move. It's a walk in the park and I work 18 hour days on the fishing boat. Like go ahead and try me. And he just was like, all right. (laughs) So I don't think he really wanted to give me the job, but I, I definitely tried to muscle my way in a little bit and he liked the feistiness and gave me a chance. And I ended up excelling. I realized that I had a lot of the skills to be a caddy that I had gained from other, you know, other industries, like just having a personality, getting along with being personable and, uh, came from the hospitality industry it's like I had already done food and beverage and had to work with people all the time so that that was really comfortable and living on a sailboat I realized I knew the wind better than all of the caddies that were already out there so um coming up with yardage ended up being pretty I learned that pretty quickly and became accurate pretty quickly and then putt reads um you know in school I studied um music, uh, mainly for scholarships, but I also studied uh, chemistry and biochemistry, and there's just a lot of geometry in that. So that's where that came in for green reading is all the geometry. <laughs> so it just kind of fell together, and the next thing I know, I'm doing this, and I, it's like I get to walk around in the park all day. I love it. Um, so now I've kind of, yeah, it's kind of become a full-time, you know, all-around-the-country gig, actually. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, so what's your home resort? And then I guess the kind of the related question is, you know, are you caddying for specific golfers on the tour or do you go to other events that aren't in your hometown to caddy? Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. So, yes, yes, and yes to all those. So I am at Bandon Dunes Golf Resort, which is, you know, they kind of flip-flop number one spot with Pebble Beach. But, you know, I would definitely consider it number one in the country for public uh, links golf. It's incredible. It's right on the cliff. You're literally walking along the cliffs every day. I mean, the property is a 3000 acre property. We have five 18 hole golf courses now and two par three courses. Our newest course, the sheep ranch just opened up June of this year. And it is like absolutely incredible. I mean, I just, you can't even describe it. So, I am there the majority of the time. Um, I own a home nearby and, you know, my kids and I were here most of the year. Um, I, since I have been at Band and Dunes for eight years now, most of my work is request or return customers. I rarely take new jobs at this point because I tend to be pretty well booked out throughout the year. So like, I think since we opened, um, for COVID, I've really only met like three or four new groups that I've been working the whole time. So at this point, I just work on referrals. Um, and then uh, and we, we have the largest caddy program I know in the country, possibly in the world. There's 350 of us here. So it's a pretty big program. Most people take a caddy because it's walking only and it's a good eight, eight and a half mile hike on each course. So it's a you know, it's a decent hike. Um, in January, I go down to the desert, kind of just a little work break, switch it up, and I caddy on the PGA Tour for the Pro-Am. So I do have some regular requests from people that play in the Pro-Am every year. And I, I carry specifically one girl. She actually won the Desert Classic. Well, they call it the Bob Hope Classic. That's how everybody knows it. In 2019. 
Um, so I take her and then the caddy master will schedule me to other players for the other pro-ams like um, at the waste management or over in San Diego. So I do hang out with the tour a little bit, usually just in January unless I get a call. And then I also work at um, three private country clubs. They are Discovery Land Properties. Um, Discovery manages these properties. Really incredible high-end private properties. Uh, I mean, the golf is just exceptional. Service is exceptional. Um, One of those is the Madison Club. That is down in Palm Desert. That's where all of the uh, PGA pros like to practice when they're down there. And then the sister course is up in um, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. That's Gaza Ranch. And then the third one is in Las Vegas called the Summit. So I just kind of hop around to keep it interesting. And oftentimes, a lot of those can kind of coincide with some of my fly fishing gigs. So I just line it up. It's like I go to Coeur d'Alene, then I go to Montana for Fly Fishers International, and then come home, you know, because they're so close together in timing. Yeah, very cool. And so, you know, what's one of your favorite memories from your caddying career? Oh, by far winning the Desert Classic. That was insane for me because it was my first, you know, my first year on tour was two years ago. And I was so nervous to do it because I just, I was like, I don't even know if I travel well. Like, maybe I'm just a good caddy abandoned dudes. Like, maybe I'm not actually a good caddy. I don't know. You know, I have those courses. I literally think I could caddy those courses blind. I have them memorized, you know. Um, So I wasn't sure how I'd do at new courses, you know, not to mention that. That's like a fast track thing. You go down there, you learn the course that day, you walk the course, figure it out, and the next day you're in practice rounds, and then you're competing that weekend, and then you go off to another course. So I was incredibly nervous, but I had, again, I had had three caddy friends that worked down in the desert, and they just were like, you have to come do this. And I was just like, why? And they're like, you just have to. And so, I mean, I was honestly terrified. Um, I got paired up with this really awesome girl named Anaya. And um, her and her, fa- her father is actually the longest standing amateur player in this event. He's been doing it for like 40 years. It's insane. Um, but I, I carry her. She's an incredible ball striker. She's I think her handicap is honestly the same as mine. It's an 11, but she is a much better ball striker and not a great putt reader. So the combo with us together is pretty deadly. And we, uh, my very first year on tour on my very first, uh, you know, my very first tournament, we won the entire tournament 38 under par. Wow. So that was insane. Yeah. Very cool. And, you know, I, I guess I, I first met you, uh, in the recent article that was in, I think the, not the newest, but the, I guess the issue before fly tire magazine and you talked, yes, the yeah, yeah, the summer one. And, um, you know, you talked a little bit about a boyfriend who wouldn't share his fly tying materials with you. Um, <laughs> <That's>, yeah, <laughs> uh, but, um, tell me a little bit about what attracted you to fly tying. You know, it, it's, this is kind of funny, but it's like, I just, I obviously with my job, I, I just don't sit still well. I don't do well with doing nothing. Um, I never just sit around and watch TV. I mean, I like to sit and watch TV, but I just, I need my hands going. So one thing I used to do when I was much younger, is like my mom and my sister, 
you know, they're pretty girly girl. They're into arts and crafts and they'd be cross stitching. And so I'm like, okay, I'll cross stitch and I'm doing it. But I'm like, I hate everything I made. You know, I was like, oh, I made this pillow. Awesome. Somebody take it. I never want to see it again. I hate the way cross stitch looks. You know? <laughs> and so I'm like, fly tying is like cross stitching, only I actually want to keep and use the product. And that was one of the things with the cross stitch. I'm like, I hate that I have done all these things. I have absolutely nothing to show for it, nor do I want any of it, you know. So the fly tying, that's really, you know, it's like I do that a lot in the evening, just kind of as a decompress. I My bench is um, right in front of the TV, and I just put a movie on and half pay attention to it while I tie something up, you know. Yeah, very neat. And so, you know, what was the first vice that you bought, and do you remember the first pattern that you tied on it? Um, yeah, it's embarrassing to say that I'm tying on the first vice that I bought because it really needs to be replaced. Um, it is a Renzetti Traveler. Um, that was the the guy that I dated. He had a Renzetti Traveler. I liked the vice. It was a good price point, and um, I still love it. I I have been talking about getting new vice. I don't know when I'm going to do that. Probably won't do it until I can't tie on this anymore. <laughs> um, but yeah, I love Renzetti. They don't really have much of a pro program, unfortunately. I mean, they promote me a lot on their website, but they just don't really um, give product away because they're just such a small family-owned business. So I'm not sure if I'll end up, you know, um, signing with somebody else or staying with them or not, but it's been an incredible vice. And then my first pattern, um, I actually have on my bench here and it's always in front of me so that I can remember <laughs> it is a hopper. I tied a hopper. It's pretty good. Actually, I'd be embarrassed, you know, now, but I'm pretty sure I catch fish and it's not too bad for the first one. Got it. A foam hopper or a deer hair hopper? Uh, it's a little of both. There's a foam body. Actually, no, I'm looking at think of my first one. Um, it's foam body and then the deer hair is backwards and then wrapped over the head. That's pretty fancy for my first one. Yeah. Bullet head, right? Yeah. yeah. That is pretty fancy. And, and, you know, you haven't been tying that long and you're already a professional tire. You know, how long did it take you from being interested in starting to tie um, to becoming a professional tire, and how did you become so proficient so quickly? Um, technically, it was about nine months when I got my first sponsorship, and that was with Spirit River, who has since been sold to Hairline Dubbing, and they don't carry a pro program anymore, so I just have a commercial account with Hairline. But um, Bob, uh, Bill Black owns Spirit River. He's another awesome fisherman. Um, who lives kind of nearby and definitely a mentor for sure. Probably should have mentioned him. He, um, you know, he just took me in. Um, his manager saw me at a show and she's like, we want you. And, and I was like, huh? I don't understand, you know, because I'm just over there. I think it was one of my first shows, maybe my second show. Um, but, um, you know, when I, when I did my first show, I didn't, I didn't really know what to expect. I mean, I had been to some fly shows, but I don't think that it registered. It's like once I was gone from the show and then, you know, six months later, somebody had invited me to tie it at the first show I was going to tie it. I didn't, 
I didn't really remember what each tire's booth looked like. And in my mind, again, I was so freaked out about doing it because I knew I had no real business being there yet. Um, I was like, I bet I need to go in there looking like I've been here a while. You know, I don't want to look like I'm new. So I go down to the beach and get this driftwood and I tie up all these samples and I go and I must have had like probably 25 patterns on display and I get there and people all have like one or two (laughs) patterns (laughs) and I'm like, okay, I've overdone it. I've overshot the, you know, the landing here, but it it was a hit, you know, it kind of took off. And I think that was one of the things is my booth was so flashy because I had so much going on with the big steelhead flies and just a lot of color that they're like, no, we want you at the shows. We, we need like flashy. We like this. So I think that that was probably, she saw that and was like, Hey, we're going to take you on. Yeah. Very neat. And, um, who are some of the people that influence you as a tire? I mean, who do you follow and, and you know, what other tires do you like to kind of watch and maybe borrow a little bit from them? Um, I do, um, April Voku's probably like my, you know, she's more fishing than tying, but she's like definitely my number one in the industry for so many reasons. One, cause you know, it's like being a woman in a man's world, blah, 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 just can be a little isolating and, um, and can be tough at times and they don't take you seriously and they, they don't know what you're doing there, you know? And so. She's definitely been a big influence. And, you know, there's a couple um, on Instagram that I really uh, enjoy. I would say Matt Callies from Loon Outdoors. I mean, I'm on their pro staff program. And I we haven't met in person, but we have, you know, chatted a lot um, through the Internet. And, you know, he's a great guy and ties some awesome stuff up. Um, and then there's a, another one on Instagram and his name's Sven Diesel is his, uh, and he just does ridiculous stuff on, on the vice ties stuff that makes absolutely no sense. And I love it. <laughs> it's just kind of that creativity, like screw it, who cares, you know? So, um, those are probably the, the top ones for me. Yeah. Very neat. And what was kind of the, the biggest surprise or adjustment for you kind of shifting from tying for yourself to tying for others? Um, you know, there is a lot of pressure there, pressure to get it right or even pressure to get it done. I, I noticed, I'm not so bad now, but I noticed when I first started, I was kind of like procrastinate a little on the order because I was like, you know, I don't know what the, it's just uh, people call up and order like four dozen flies and all of a sudden you feel a little bogged down, you know? So, um, I think that production tying, um, and you know, I also notice that sometimes I might do a couple wraps and then I stare at the TV for a while, you know, and then I come back and it's like, Oh, it took me 30 minutes <laughs> to tie that fly. Right. Cause I was just doing it for me. So, um, I actually have a really cool production wheel, um, that Renzetti, they didn't make very many of them, but you, it's this wheel that you can spin and so you can do like three or four flies that you do three flies at a time. And that way you can kind of production tie. So in that sense, I definitely do things different where like, um, I'll, you know, I'll tie a dozen partial flies depending on what, you know, what the elements are and then go around again and finish the dozen partial flies. That tends to be much faster. 
Interesting. So is that uh, is that wheel like a lazy Susan that fits around um, the stem of the vise, or is it separate? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it's like a lazy Susan, and you just stick three vise stems in there, and you just move it. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it is pretty cool. So, so I, I know from uh, doing my research, but not on LinkedIn, um, that you uh, that you specialize in tying custom flies, and, and I was curious about what attracted you to doing custom orders as opposed to becoming a production tire. Well, I think a big thing was the price point. I mean, I look at these people that I know that tie for um, fly shops, and I'm like, you can't make any money. Like that's sweatshop work. I'm not looking to work in a factory, you know? And I just, I didn't see a way that I could, you know, stamp out hundreds of flies and even make any money after I'd done it, you know? I mean, the fly shops, obviously they, they have a price point that they need to cover, but I kind of do too. And it was like, I can't, I can't get paid for my time doing this. And I think that a lot of that is outsourced overseas because it makes sense because you know, just with the difference in economy in some of these countries, the fly tires um, are getting a dollar fifty or two a fly, and then they're marking it up to three or four over here. Well, a dollar fifty over there is like they're loaded. You know, like if they're making a dollar fifty off of a fly based on the economy, they're they're just making so much money. So it really just makes sense to let those people make money and not have us try to struggle to do it here to be honest i had heard about this woman i honestly don't even know her name but she is apparently a fly tire in england that is so highly sought after i guess dave matthews and tom cruise and all these stars uh order their flies from her and she's got over a year waiting list and she charges quite a bit but she makes really good money and i was like i that's the only way i see being able to do it is to sell it more as working art um, to, you know, say that I am the only person tying these, I'm not going to outsource anything. And then having said that, I just, you know, I really take time. Like every fly is going to look perfect that I send out. Like if I tie a fly and it doesn't look perfect, it goes in my box. <laughs> kind of how it works, you know, and I'll just tie more until they're all perfect. And that has worked out. I tend to have a waiting list, um, you know, usually only a few months out, but so far it's been you know pretty steady so well that's pretty cool and so when you aren't tying for other people what do you like to tie for yourself you know it has been a struggle to try and get flies in my own box i feel like a lot of the trips that i've taken i get there and i'm like god the box was kind of empty because i'm tying for other people a lot um this year i did get a lot of that done and one of the things that i i mean i'm just such a map the hatch person i have to travel so much for different shows that i oftentimes end up in waters that i've never been in so i'm down there shaking the trees and turning over the rocks and i usually bring all my tying stuff with me and then they go back to the truck and i usually plan for one afternoon of tying the hatch in the area where i arrive and then the next few days just fishing those ties very, very cool. And, you know, for us regular tires, can you give us two or three tips that you've picked up um, from uh, your professional tour of duty? You know, I think that the biggest thing that I have um, done to make my flies look better is like the amount of wrap can really get carried away. 
I mean, I think we all have the tendency to want to make sure things are tied down. So it's like, you know, you're putting something on and you're wrapping it three or four times and then you're putting it on the other side and wrapping it three or four times and then you're tying something on top. And it's like, now that's like too much. So um, I tend to try and it's like if I'm, you know, if I know stuff is going on top and I will only do like one, maybe two wraps. And on, on each item, because then by the time you're getting to the head, there's like, you know, 30, 40 or however many are on there, but then the head's much smaller. And also crowding the head tends to be a problem for a lot of people. I mean, you can even take in a marker and just notching the uh, fly to kind of find a spot where like, you know, you need to stop, you know, before you get the head on. That's been, because I think it just, people tend to keep going and then they run out of room and then all of a sudden, you know, got problems. Yeah. You got a fly that you can't, uh, get any tippet <laughs> through the yeah, eye of the yeah, hook. Yeah. It's a nice fly, but you can't fish it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, any other tips? Um, gosh, I'm trying to think, you know, I think that, um, the other thing that if you have access to is when you're in the store picking out material, that's one thing I'm big about is I open every package in the store and pull it all out. Like if there's a string of guinea feathers or whatever, I open the package, I spray them out and I'm looking at them all. You really got to pick through the material in the store because it's not all the same and it's not all good quality. Like you really have to pick through it to find the good stuff, especially with hair and feathers, I should say. And that the high quality um, will make a big difference. And then like the other thing too is prepping prepping feathers um you know kind of like skinning the bottoms or like if i'm uh, palmering marabou um like I, t I take the bottoms off and i leave them in these tiny little prepped feathers where when i'm done wrapping it's a bear you know like a bear quill that i'm tying on and that makes them much much cleaner got it and what's one tying tool that you absolutely positively can't live without and it would surprise us um you know it's funny i i got these little scissors from a friend um who is a tire on the east coast uh, well not quite on the coast east east of the mississippi i should say and they are actually eye surgery scissors but the points on these are so tiny. They're tinier than any micro tip scissor you can find, which I shouldn't be saying because I love all my Dr. Slick stuff. Um, but you can't cut a cleaner, like for the tiny little 22, 24, 26 midges, all these tiny, you cannot cut a cleaner, you know, thread with these things. So these are kind of my favorite. Um, other than that, the, Dr. Slick has come out with these new stackers and they're so heavy. I mean, I can't even use the other stuff I have. They, I, I even put up something. It's been a while on Instagram weighing out the stackers that I had like four different companies of stackers. And I mean, these things are just incredible. Very neat. And, you know, you, you mentioned kind of getting into the fly fishing show game pretty early on um, in your tying career and you've kind of become a fixture on the west coast and 
you know, obviously things are a little bit up in the air this year with COVID, but, you know, what are your plans for the upcoming show season? Yeah. So, I mean, we still have some shows planned. I don't really know how that's going to go. Um, I'm kind of confused because some of them haven't canceled yet, but I feel like they should, you know, um, some of them have been online too. That's a little, you know, I don't know if they've quite got that down yet. Um, as far as the platform that they use, but I'm hoping things will return to normal. Otherwise I've been kind of, um, doing my own, uh, doing my own little tour. So what I'll do is I'll like, I'll go to bend or I'll go to, you know, I went to Eastern Oregon to some rivers over there and I'll set up camp, um, in a fly fishing camp where, you know, it's like where everybody there is probably fly fishing. And I usually do this thing where like at night I'll either pull out my guitar, play some music, try to lure some people over (laughs) or I'll set my bench out and I'll tie in the evening. And it usually draws the crowd in and they want to start asking questions. And and that's when I like, I'll pull out my TFO rods and show them what's new um, and show them what I got from Dr. Slick on my bench. And and that's kind of how I spread the word at this point is just um, actually going out and fishing and meeting meeting fishermen and just like doing a little, you know, demo tie there. Cause I usually, I call them road ties. I'm mean, always tie on the road and, uh, it really kind of gets people interested, you know, very neat in a kind of a pre COVID world. What shows did you like to go to? So, um, I go to, gosh, I've got a few. There's a couple in Boise, Idaho. I attended a visit that one. Um, there is, uh, we've got several in the area. There's one over on the coast in Oregon. There's a, our biggest one is um, up in Albany every year. That's a very large show. So I go to that. Um, that's just a Pacific Northwest show. We've got a Portland Tires Rendezvous, which is really cool because it's a very small select uh, amount of tires, but they're from all over the world. So that one's really cool. And then I tend to go, we have an annual uh, convention in Bozeman, Montana, and that is through Fly Fishers International. So we have like week-long conferences, but we also teach classes all week, on-the-water casting classes, um, fishing clinics, tying classes. That one's a lot of fun, and it draws in a huge crowd. Very neat. Is there anything else on the horizon for Sarah Joe Flies you want to share with our listeners? I mean, not that I know of yet. I'm just kind of plucking along. To be honest, when I first started all this, I had no intention of, you know, going professional so quick. In my mind, I was like, oh, you know, maybe if I put a decade into the industry, um, somebody will want to listen to me 10 years from now, and maybe I won't carry as many bags. You know, my idea was, you know, when I'm older, like in my 60s or something, I might not want to carry as many bags. Maybe I'll want to work in the fly fishing industry, but it just took off and I'm trying to keep up with it, to be honest. Yeah, very neat. Speaking of keeping up with it, why don't you let folks know the best way to get in touch with you to order flies and to generally kind of follow you on social media and all that kind of good stuff? Yeah, you know, I'm really an Instagrammer. So, um, Sarah Joe Flies. On Instagram, um, direct message me is probably the best way. I know that my email, sarahjoeflies at gmail.com, is also on my Instagram profile. So anybody can go 
and email me there. But that's kind of where I stay. I do have a Facebook page, and but I post from Instagram to Facebook. I don't go on there a ton, to be honest. Um, I just can only handle so many platforms. So I would say that's the way to go for sure. Well, that's awesome. Well, listen, Sarah Jo, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me this evening. It was a lot of fun. Thank you, Marvin, so much. Oh, it was my pleasure. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a review in the podcatcher of your choice. Tight lines, everybody. Mm-hmm.